Good afternoon, everybody. And welcome, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Dan Eikenson. I am the Associate Director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here. I'm really happy to see such a large turnout. Uh, not only is trade facilitation an important uh, topic to which your attendance affirms, but it also justifies uh, the fact that we just wrote a paper on this topic, too. So uh, thank you for celebrating this together. Um, the Cato Institute's uh, Center for Trade Policy Studies uh, is around to help educate the public and policymakers, media, about the benefits of free trade and the, and the costs of protectionism. The paper we just published, uh, which was out on the table, is, is sort of an overview on trade facilitation, a uh, descriptive overview. Uh, it, it argues that uh, trade facilitation offers quite a lot in terms of increased trade flows. Uh, we don't necessarily need to wait for new agreements to move forward. There are, these are the kinds of unilateral reforms uh, that benefit all countries. We hadn't focused a lot in this area. Most of our research is focused in um, traditional trade barriers, tariffs, subsidies, uh, and so we sort of neglected work in this area, but it is very important. Many economists, including a couple of them up here, I think will tell you that uh, there, there are more gains to be had from trade facilitation reforms than there is from uh, new tariff liberalization, at least at this point. I, I think of it this way. I, I use this garden, gardening analogy. If you turn on your water spigot, crank it on, that is reducing tariffs. If you crank it on all the way, that's zero tariffs. But if your hose is kinked up and tangled, you're not going to get that water flow. So trade facilitation is really about unkinking that hose, and uh, it's just as important, as, as, as uh, if not more, than stroke of the pen tariff liberalization. Uh, I would say it's not just a developing country issue, although I, I have the feeling a lot of people have followed the issue because it does seem to affect developing countries a lot. Uh, the United States and other rich countries have a lot to gain from trade facilitation as well. Steve Kreskoff, uh, one of the speakers, I don't mean to steal your thunder, Steve, but I did include this in the paper, um, points out that a one-day reduction in the time it takes to import into the United States and export from the United States could increase annual trade flows by about $29 billion. And to put that in perspective, the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement is projected to add about $20 billion to trade. So we're talking about something that's very important. Uh, it's evident that reductions in transit time uh, and greater predictability in the supply chain are really what is important to motivate more trade flows. But how do we best achieve those improvements? Uh, I think John Wilson will speak to that. Uh, I, I want to bring up one example, I think, that really captures the problem we have and, and the scope for gains. Uh, in my paper, which I sort of stole from the World Bank's Doing Business report, uh, is a story about Tariq, who is a, a Yemeni fish fisherman or a fish exporter. And he can export fish fresh to Germany for $5.20 a kilo. Uh, his other market is Pakistan, where he can sell frozen fish for uh, $1.10 per kilo. But because it takes 33 days on average to export from Yemen, uh, he exports only 15% of his fish fresh, I don't know what 33-day-old fresh fish tastes like, but 85% uh, uh, of it goes frozen to Pakistan, and that's an opportunity cost to him of about $7 million a year. Mm. What I like also about trade facilitation is that it is, it is a unilateral. It, it puts the power within the hands of each country to do what's in their own interest, and that's really what it's about. 
I, I, I think the negotiators in Geneva, the trade bureaucracies in uh, Washington and Brussels and elsewhere are doing good work, but uh, we're not dependent on them. We can, we can go forward without them. Trade flows since the beginning of the Doha round in 2001 have increased 70 percent. Uh, annual FDI has increased, flows have increased 25 percent, and the world economy has grown 30 percent. So we're not waiting for Doha necessarily. Um, but all of this talk about Doha uh, and the fact that it's in a slumber, and that's one of the reasons that I'm uh, suggesting going forward with these kinds of reforms, uh, it, it's, it, the problem with Doha is that uh, we don't need it uh, to happen. We can make progress without it. Uh, but it's, it got me into a little bit of trouble, I think, with the USTR's office. I think they took a little bit of offense uh, to the fact that I was suggesting going forward without an agreement. They said, you don't like rules. Well, it's not that I don't like rules. I just said, we don't need them. Uh, so I met over there the other day, and they wanted, they, they wanted to impress upon me the importance of negotiations, and I agree with this, and I, I will bring it up here, and that is many countries' customs administrations are sort of a, a government unto themselves, uh, and it's hard to get them to reform, and they are frequently uh, the largest target of trade facilitation reforms. The negotiations have brought together the customs administrations and the trade policy teams in the same room, and that is, I think, that it's important to foster uh, reform. You need to have those groups together. So I'll grant them that. Um, in fact, there is a rumor, at least, that there is a provisional agreement that has been reached or about to be reached on trade facilitation. Uh, and I'll give a plug to uh, Cordell Hull Institute, they're holding an event next week, and Bruce Hirsch is going to be talking about this. Uh, he wouldn't give me the details. I don't know exactly how they have a, an agreement. I don't know if it means that this agreement is on hold and it waits for years until Doha all comes together, or if it's a standalone and somehow it, uh, they, it, it avoids the single undertaking concept. Maybe we'll know more about that next week. Anyway, We've assembled a good panel here today. I mean, everybody says that when you come to an event. Oh, we've got a great panel. But uh, these guys really are. I mean, we've got some of the rock stars of trade facilitation. When I started researching my paper, when I, I started by Googling trade facilitation, and the names of most of these guys came up uh, on the first or second page. So we have Steve Kreskoff who's going to speak first, and uh, some of his papers were out on the table. Uh, John Wilson from the World Bank will speak after that. Uh, again, his name is all over the literature. Mike Finger formerly of the World Bank, uh, formerly of a lot of uh, organizations, has been around Washington uh, for a long time, a huge contributor to the literature. Uh, and he told me he's angry as hell, so we'll hear what he has to say there. And uh, Mad as hell. <laughs> uh, and we have Bill Lane of Caterpillar. He's been in Washington for a long time. He's also with the HELP Commission. He'll talk to you about that. We're going to start with, uh, with uh, Steve Prescott. Steve is an international trade and customs lawyer. Uh, and a, he's a partner in Kreskoff and Durham and a senior advisor law and, uh, in the law and trade area for Bearing Point uh, Incorporated. Uh, as an international consultant, he's worked in more than 40 countries uh, on trade facilitation issues, on WTO customs issues, special economic zones, and legal reform issues. Uh, Mr. Kreskoff has held various high-level positions in the Treasury Department under previous administrations. He participated uh, in the negotiation of what is now the WTO agreement mm -hmm. uh, on customs valuation and the harmonized system nomenclature and the development of the U.S. Foreign Trade Zones program. Uh, Mr. Kreskoff's recent publications are out on that table. They were published uh, in the Global Trade and Customs Journal, um, Trade Facilitation, an Overlooked Engine of Trade Expansion, 
and uh, the WTO trade facilitation negotiations. It's time to agree on basic principles. Please help me welcome Steve Kreskoff. Just hit the enter. Good afternoon, everybody. I guess we are in the afternoon phase now. And I don't really uh, feel like a rock star, Dan, so, but thank you for the compliment. <laughs> being the rock star in uh, trade facilitation is like being, uh, I suppose, captain of the junior high chess team. <laughs> Good analogy. <laughs> but let's talk uh, about trade facilitation. I'll try and give you an overview. I don't have too much time. Dan has uh, told me about 10 or 12 minutes. It's kind of difficult for a lawyer to do, you know, when you get paid by the word. But uh, I'm going to try and tell you why trade facilitation is important, how trade facilitation is defined and measured, at least by my lights, um, benefits of improved trade facilitation, why improvements have been difficult, particularly in developing countries, and uh, last but not least, do international agreements uh, work to improve trade facilitation? And, of course, as a lawyer who's negotiated agreements, I tend to be in favor of international agreements. And I, th I think they can, they can work, and I've seen them uh, work, at least in terms of uh, guiding principles in the countries where I've worked. Well, World Bank research and research by other economists indicates that each day an international shipment is delayed, trade in time-sensitive goods may be reduced by as much as 7 percent, and trade in non time-sensitive goods may be reduced by 1 percent. These are pretty big figures. So trade facilitation improvements, as Dan indicated, uh, frequently have a bigger positive impact on trade than tariff reductions. Uh, as an example, and Dan just gave this example of the uh, U.S.-Korea uh, FTA, which is, uh, according to the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, um, the most commercially significant uh, trade agreement since the Uruguay round was concluded, so that's, that's been 12 or 13 years now, is projected to add $20 billion in bilateral trade, whereas uh, just a one-day uh, improvement in shipping time for U.S. imports and exports could add around $29 billion in trade a year. So you can see the, the, the magnitude that uh, a trade facilitation improvements can, can have. Let me talk uh, briefly about opposite poles of trade facilitation. Some of you have, have uh, probably read um, Tom Friedman's uh, uh, recent book, The World is Flat, and he gives an example in that book of how his uh, Dell laptop was manufactured. Dell has six factories around the world, uh, a Nashville hub. They have uh, just-in-time supplier logistics centers around the factories, and a supply chain involving 400 companies. And uh, on average, at least when uh, Mr. Friedman wrote, his, wrote the book, which goes back a few years, the time between order and delivery was four days. It's probably, I would imagine, less now. So trade facilitation is essential to modern business, to modern multinational business. And it's business, as uh, Mr. Lane will tell us, that has been pushing uh, the improvements in trade facilitation in the last couple of decades. Now, um, let me tell you about the opposite pole, uh, truckers traveling between Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. And uh, I know that uh, my friend uh, Robert Kirk is in the audience, and he's uh, been working in that, uh, that part of the world. And I think somebody from the uh, embassy of uh, Uzbekistan might be here today. But it's um, a difficult situation. Um, there are unofficial payments. There are uh, multiple documents. A recent Johns Hopkins 
uh, survey found 70 documents and multiple signatures required, and the, uh, the World Bank uh, doing business um, trading across borders survey indicates that it may be a half a year, actually, to move goods from a shipper in Uzbekistan to a recipient in Tajikistan, and these are adjacent countries. Uh, so how do we define trade facilitation? Well, I'm not an economist. I'm a lawyer. But I, uh, I would submit that uh, for a, de- a definition to be useful, it, um, it should involve uh, elements that can be quantified. So I would propose that uh, we look at uh, shipment times and costs of shipment. These, uh, this is data that is routinely cl- uh, collected in commercial transactions, and the World Bank, in fact, um, as part of the trading cross-border survey, is using this, this data. So I would propose as a definition, and this is in one of the papers that uh, is out on the table, uh, that uh, trade facilitation is the administrative and logistic steps required in the international movement of goods as measured by shipment time and freight costs, uh, of course, for a standard container and an identical mode of transport. Now, uh, using the, the World Bank data, Trading Across Borders uh, survey in 2008, which is a survey of 178 economies, let's just take a quick look uh, at some of the countries surveyed. Singapore in the survey is, uh, has the best trade facilitation, so looking at those two metrics, time for export and the uh, cost of shipment. Uh, Singapore is at five days and $416 for a shipment. Compared to the United States, it's six days and $960. So six days is a little, you know, worse than five, but uh, what uh, doesn't look good in terms of Singapore is the cost of shipment uh, in the United States. And then, of course, at the bottom is sub-Saharan Africa, where all sorts of problems there uh, in terms of trade facilitation, 35.6 days and $1,660. Well, how are we measuring trade facilitation? The, um, Of course, the World Bank uh, Trading Across Borders survey is, is one measurement. Uh, the World Bank has also developed uh, a logistics performance index, which is a survey of freight forwarders and express cor- uh, couriers. This is a little bit newer uh, and, and probably somewhat more sophisticated measure, but it also includes as in its elements uh, the uh, cost of shipments and the time of shipments. Uh, there are also time release studies, which have been um, used by various customs administrations, industry studies, and uh, the um, uh, Global Express Association, an association of uh, express couriers, uh, does regular surveys. Uh, and, of course, uh, those of you from the private sector are familiar with benchmarking surveys. Um, let's talk about uh, now some of the benefits of improved trade facilitation. I recently uh, was doing some work in Cambodia with the garment industry there. And the garment industry in Cambodia is uh, primarily Chinese-owned, Chinese-managed. Um, so it's the same people that are running the, uh, the garment industry in, in, in China. The workers are just as productive. Um, they're paid less. So why is it that Cambodia can't compete with mainland China in terms of uh, garment trade? The answer, I think, I would submit, is poor trade facilitation. So we, in this chart, we compare Cambodia to China, and uh, we see that uh, uh, the time for export in Cambodia is, uh, is much longer, and the cost of export is much higher than mainland China. 
Now let's take a, an example that's a little bit closer to home, the United States and mainland China. Well, the U.S. is doing a lot better than China in terms of time for export, six days compared to 21 days. But in terms of the cost of exports, uh, there's no contest. China's far ahead, $390 as opposed to $960. So that's about 250 percent higher costs. So the U.S. is at a disadvantage. Now, some of you may say, well, maybe this is the undervalued uh, yuan. And maybe some of that is true. But even if you uh, uh, adjust for that, there's still a very substantial uh, differential. Um, why have improvements been difficult uh, in developing countries and in developed countries, for that matter? Well, uh, first of all, we have the, the what I call the homeland security <coughs> issue. Every country uh, has to worry about uh, policing its borders, and there's a lot of countries that live in dangerous neighborhoods. So um, scrutiny at the border can slow the movement of goods, and there has to be uh, an appropriate use of uh, risk management and, and modern technology to uh, fulfill the uh, national security obligation at the same time as f facilitating trade. Then uh, there's the corruption element, or what we call corruption here in um, developed countries, but uh, some people could characterize as a, as a user fee. So if in, in parts of the world where customs administrations and other border officials are poorly paid or not paid at all, uh, they assess what I would uh, characterize as a user fee on um, the, the, um, the shippers who are crossing their borders. Uh, if they want to have their goods moved, they pay a fee. If they want to wait a couple of weeks, uh, that's fine too. Uh, they don't have to pay a fee, but they're going to wait a long time. So that has to be dealt with. Uh, then in many countries, uh, the revenue collected by border agencies is very important to the country. If you look at the United States, uh, about 1 percent of our um, revenue going to the Treasury is collected at the border. Um, does this say five minutes or two minutes? Two minutes. Two minutes, okay. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm in the difficulty I anticipated. Um, so um, that's the U.S. example, but in a country like China, about 23 percent of the revenue comes from the border, and in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, as much as 70 percent comes from the border. So um, there's a lot of uh, incentive in those countries uh, to slow goods down to, to, for maximum collection of revenue. Uh, now, very briefly, there are four international agreements that have, been, that have attempted to improve trade facilitation, the UNECE-TIR Convention, mm. the, the World Customs Organization's Revised Kyoto Convention, the U.S. Um, uh, FTA program, and to the lesser extent, the, the EU partnership agreements have also addressed trade facilitation, and of course in uh, GATT, WTO, there are three GATT articles that address trade facilitation, and now in the Doha round, uh, there are trade uh, facilitation negotiations which may lead to an agreement. Um, will the trade facilitation negotiations in the Doha round uh, result in a useful agreement? Uh, that remains to be seen. In my view, and I've written a paper about it which is available outside, um, they uh, have not focused on uh, key trade facilitation principles and incorporating key trade facilitation principles in the negotiations. They have instead uh, opted uh, to include specific procedures which may change over the time. So I think, I think they've gone in the wrong direction, but uh, I think 
uh, ultimately a WTO trade facilitation agreement could be a good thing. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Now, our next speaker was, in fact, the captain of the junior high chess club. He is uh, John Wilson. He's a real rock star. Where are you? <laughs> I never was. Uh, John Wilson is the uh, lead economist uh, in the Development Economics Research Group at the World Bank. Uh, if you just look at the, in the, the, the footnotes in my paper, uh, a lot of, there are, there's a lot of attribution for John. Uh, he joined the bank in October 1999 uh, in the trade team and is currently managing work on trade facilitation, regulation, standards, and trade policy. Mr. Wilson's operational experience at the bank includes projects in Latin America, the Middle East, and North Africa and Eastern and Central Europe. Uh, he's also participating in the bank's trade assessment plan in India. Mr. Wilson is the task manager for banks, the bank's involvement in uh, the interagency standards and trade development facility. He's a member of the World Bank's Speakers Bureau and speaks on trade facilitation standards and export competitiveness at numerous conferences uh, and seminars around the world. Uh, he's had various positions in academia and in public policy in, in previous years. He has lots of, lots of publications. Just Google him. Uh, He's been a member of the U.S. Steering Committee uh, of the Transatlantic Business Dialogue, a member of the official delegations to the APEC uh, starting in 1995, and a member of the Corporate Advisory Committee of the Institute for International Economics. Please help me welcome John Wilson. Thank you very much, uh, Dan, and uh, uh, the Cato Institute for the uh, opportunity to be here today. Let me just get this. Uh, not used to a ThinkPad. We uh, have different computers at the bank. It's a pleasure to be here, um, in particular the opportunity to speak to an audience in Washington. Um, most of my speaking um, increasingly is outside of the United States. So it's nice to be close, to be able to walk or cab here, and it's nice to see Dan um, and a number of people who I haven't seen in, in quite a while. Um, mindful of the time, what I'd like to do uh, uh, with my 12 minutes, and I have 13 slides. One is the one you just saw, and the last one is thank you. So I'll take about a minute a slide, and if I don't, raise your hand, um, is to, to build a bit on what, what Steve just spoke about, which is putting trade facilitation in context. Um, then I'm going to, to move to the question, um, trade policy or development policy? If we're interested in lowering trade transaction costs, if we're interested in expanding trade opportunities in a development context, what, what are the appropriate tools to achieve that goal? And then a couple of very quick concluding remarks. Well, especially before lunch, um, uh, maybe any time during the day, it's nice to start off with a little bit of a good news story. Um, and with the proviso that obviously short-term um, projections, short-term obstacles um, factor in to economic forecasts and um, projections with a, with a bit of a question mark. The overall good news story um, over the past several decades and projected out 
over the next decade or so is that global economic growth across the globe um, is projected to continue. Now, obviously, there are some question marks um, over the rate of growth, but I think, you know, the history books undoubtedly tell us, um, and I think they suggest that, that over the near term, global economic growth, including for the least developed countries, is a relative good news story. Well, the developing uh, uh, members of the WTO are also catching up. Um, this is a very simple chart um, drawing on world development indicators that shows a couple of countries from the Asia-Pacific and the percent of per capita GDP as a share of U.S. GDP. And you'll see that, that the developing world is catching up. It is growing wealthier. Um, and again, this is a general statement. There are obviously question marks if one gets into the details. Well, the, the story of wealth creation um, uh, cannot be told, I think, I would suggest, without, of course, recognizing the contribution of the expansion of global trade, um, expanding opportunities for traders to engage in international commerce. Um, and this is another very simple chart from the World uh, Bank Development Indicators report series that shows trade as a share of GDP. Trade is increasingly a part of this, this, um, uh, this good news in general story on economic growth, wealth creation, and also poverty alleviation. Well, you know, why, why does transparency matter? Why does trade facilitation matter within this broader context? Why does it matter today more than ever? Um, in part, it goes to what Steve mentioned, which is the reduction in tariff barriers to trade. It also goes to the sort of new agenda items which traders are keenly interested in, and undoubtedly Bill Lane will talk about this, um, but it's predictability and simplification. Fewer layers of regulation, fewer layers of, of government control over private economic activity. The transparency of trade policy, I would argue, is fundamentally important and more important today than it ever has been. Well, what is the WTO role in this? Um, Steve mentioned these, these, uh, these three GATT articles. Um, don't have time to go over the details. Um, uh, uh, the, these are well-known. Um, freedom of transit, fees and formalities connected with imports and exports, and the publication and administration of trade regulations. These are the heart of the transparency principles that relate to trade facilitation in the WTO context. Well, what, what type of agreement makes sense? This goes to the second point on the slide uh, at the beginning. Trade policy or development policy? Um, and let's start with the trade policy dynamic. In my opinion, a WTO agreement on trade facilitation makes sense when it is embodied in a system that is the linchpin of the WTO, which is shared rights and shared responsibilities in one step. Um, much progress has already been made 
in the type of transparency enhancements that are at the core of this agenda. The World Bank has supported a series of needs assessments across the world. I just checked with a colleague of mine at the bank before I came over who um, uh, gave me a quick update on this. And by and large, there's been a good deal of progress already made associated with increased transparency on the articles that I just put up on the screen. Well, any trade expert is, is undoubtedly um, uh, uh, at some point asked about special and differential treatment. You know, is this, a, is this a, 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 an agreement that should be anchored in detailed differences across the income level for WTO members? I guess I would argue largely not um, that the shared rights and responsibilities are important for all members. Um, but that maybe there's a, a scope for a revised and enhanced trade policy review mechanism to, to handle disputes. And Mike Finger and I, um, who will be following, suggested that in a paper uh, a while ago. Um, the third point is really part of the heart of the negotiations that continue. And should there be a quid pro quo within the context of an agreement on the WTO? Should there be an explicit link to development funding for the undertaking of rights and responsibilities under a trade facilitation agreement? I guess I would suggest, um, and I, I, uh, Mike and I addressed some of this in the paper that we had done, um, and the dialogue subsequent is, is largely no. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. And that is really because development aid is flowing and continues to flow in this area of trade facilitation. So why is it important? 60 years is too long not to revisit a GATT article. Um, that's, I think, the, the simple first point. The spillover effects and demonstration effect of anchoring commitments in the WTO matters, and there's empirical evidence of this and anecdotal evidence. Um, and also the fact that expanding opportunities for South-South trade between developing countries is really critical, I think, growing and ever more important, and in this area it is very important. So stepping from trade to development, um, uh, what is the development dynamic? What part of this agenda is in a development framework? I mentioned that aid is flowing um, in this area. The World Bank lending in FY06 was about $1.6 billion, $1 billion in FY07 in these broad trade facilitation projects. Um, new bank um, research that I'm involved in um, suggests that this broader development agenda in reform, in transparency, beyond the core principles and what, what is likely out of uh, within the, the purview of the World Trade Organization suggests a significant gain in welfare. Um, we have a new, a new paper just out that estimates about a $326 billion welfare, welfare gain to trade with raising transparency to the regional average in the Asia-Pacific. Um, and so in a development context, the benefits of a broad-based reform, I would suggest, are, uh, could, be, could be significant. 
Well, in conclusion, um, uh, uh, personally, I think trade facilitation should be top of the agenda um, uh, for the reasons that myself and others have, have mentioned. The WTO agreement is helpful um, in anchoring these baseline commitments at the domestic level, but it's important to remember that there is an, another dynamic here in a development context, um, and there is also another dynamic associated with private capital flows, um, global pools of savings to invest in the type of infrastructure and initiatives to support trade expansion and facilitation, and again, also the development agenda. And with that, I'll thank our organizers and, and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, John. Great presentation. Well, our next speaker, and if you've uh, followed trade policy uh, with any rigor and vigor since the 1970s, this guy needs no introduction. Uh, but in case that doesn't uh, describe you, let me talk a little bit about uh, Mike J. Michael Finger. Uh, he's known for his seminal works in international economics in a variety of areas, uh, the GATT and WTO system and how that relates to development development assistance within the WTO system, trade restrictions like safeguards and anti-dumping uh, in Latin America, trade liberalization, uh, the commercial value of intellectual property in poor countries, aid for trade, which is clearly related to uh, this trade facilitation issue, uh, the coordination of development support and the rules-making function of the, of the WTO. Uh, Dr. Finger retired from the World Bank in 2001, but he's still pretty active on this topic. Uh, while there, he served as lead economist and, and chief for the Trade Policy Research Group and was the bank's initial coordinator for the integrated framework for the trade-related technical assistance to least developed countries. Uh, he's been uh, the author of six books, author or co-author of six books. Uh, he has a long, long list of articles. If you have a heavy-duty staple, uh, you can print out his list of articles here on his CV. Um, I will in the interest of time, I'm just going to turn the, the mic over to Mike. Uh, he's got a Ph.D. from the University of North Carolina, uh, a B.A. from the University of Texas. Maybe we can figure out whether he has a Texas or a North Carolina accent. Uh, please help me welcome Mike Finger. Good morning. I, uh, I come in attack mode. As uh, I guess I might, to borrow from Peter Finch's line in the film Network, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this any longer. I come to tell you that there is a, a good agreement on trade facilitation is possible, but that such an agreement will never be reached within the WTO. And I offer, will offer his explanation for this two things. One, ignorance, prideful ignorance, and two, political cowardice at the very top of the WTO. A good agreement is on the table, along with a lot of paper, a whole lot more paper, that isn't useful coming to an agreement that codifies the good and set, sets aside the bad will require, one, 
knowledge of the liberalization that is already underway in developing countries, and particularly of what propels this liberalization, an acceptance that reciprocal mercantilist negotiations are not what propels this liberalization. It is the realized interest of domestic constituencies that propels this liberalization. And two, realization of how WTO rules have contributed to that momentum. In the study Dan referred to, I did with a colleague, Julio Nogues, on the liberalization in Latin America, we found certain aspects of WTO rules were quite supportive, perhaps even necessary, for the liberalizers to overcome the uh, protectionists in these economies. But leadership also has to realize what in the WTO is not useful and what in developing countries liberalizers have found not useful, a drag on the momentum that they were building among domestic constituencies for liberalization. And finally, leadership at the WTO will first have to acquire that knowledge and second, rub members' noses in it. So they get on from, from where we're stuck. What the Doha round is negotiating, there is a good bit of process stuff that relates to requirements to identify and recognize interested parties, allow their involvement in the making and the application of rules, transparency, publication of rules and procedures, of decisions, of reasons for decisions, etc. These are the things that... Uh, my colleagues in Latin America found useful, to paraphrase one of my friends in Latin America, <clears throat> he told me, we, we used to do these things entre amigos, <laughs> among friends. And now you're turning us into a bunch of anglosajones. <laughs> But he recognized the usefulness in at least some part of life of being transformed into an Anglo-Sahone. In addition to this process stuff, which has proven useful and could be very useful in a trade facilitation agreement, most of the stuff that's on the table stems from an observation that some well-intentioned but uh, ultimately very destructive people pointed out about the Uruguay Round agreements that involved the implementation of these sort of things. They, they pointed out that the WTO, the Uruguay Round agreements, imposed bound obligations to do these things exchanged for unbound promises from the richer countries to provide assistance. Well, unfortunately, the politics of this was not as sophisticated as the analysis of the people who created the phrase, because the politics settled on to say, well, the solution then is to create bound obligations to provide assistance. And so there is a stack of proposals for platforms and procedures and ways to somehow include bound 
obligations to provide assistance into a WTO agreement. Most of these processes turn on the idea of conducting needs assessments. Well, the problem, if you've been in the development business at all, of using a needs assessment as a functioning part of the process is that a needs assessment does not include a budget constraint. It is, when we speak privately about these things, a wish list. The reality of the business, if you're appointed country director at the World Bank, is that you don't have enough money to satisfy everything on the wish list. These are plans written by people who see themselves in a position of saying yes, yes, yes to every developing country minister who comes forward asking for money when the reality of the budget constraint is most of the time they have to say no, no, no and still maintain the working relationship with the client. So that's what the development business is like. Uh, the WTO Ministerial Declaration in Hong Kong appointed a working group to review the WTO involvement in this provision of, of assistance. The working group eventually returned its recommendations, and the recommendations were approved by the membership. The recommendations included none, none of this stuff about the WTO becoming an agency for, implement, for imposing bound obligations and providing assistance. At a conference, after this report came out, Pascal Lamy, the head of the WTO, waxed eloquent on the WTO's role in assistance, etc. In the discussion period, I commented that the working group approved by his membership had included none of this stuff. And that sounded to me like no. My question then was, what part of no do you not understand? His response was to say that the WTO's rule was to contribute coherence and clarity. What does coherence and clarity mean? Well, at best, it means a big cocktail party. The WTO, the WTO has sponsored a number of conferences around the world to discuss this matter. The agenda for the first of these, eight of the 15 items on the agenda for the first of these were receptions, cocktails, dinners, or coffee breaks. If you are included, if you're invited to the conference, you call this networking. I wasn't invited, so I call it living off the fat of the land. <laughs> At worst, that's the best. At worst, we're turning the WTO into a cuckoo bird. A cuckoo bird, those of you who enjoy watching birds, is a species of bird that lays its eggs in another bird's nest. When the cuckoo bird hatches, 
it pushes the fledglings of the host species out of the nest. They fall on the ground and die. The host species are then caught up in feeding the cuckoo bird fledgling. This came to mind. I'll skip that part, but I'm running. I'm running out of time. Okay. So, Mr. Lamy calls this contributing coherence and clarity. I call it turning the WTO into a cuckoo bird. Well, that then is the substance of the WTO program on implementation of trade facilitation. A big cocktail party, if you're optimistic, a cuckoo bird, if you're pessimistic. The politics, however, is that it keeps alive the illusion, sustains the, the illusion that the WTO will really do something about providing money to pay for these implementations, which my colleagues can point out, are already being financed in large part by local money, often in money coming from the local business community that realizes there is money to be made in improving these facilities. So the money is not needed, and yet somehow the WTO is stuck on the possibility that unless the WTO provides money, we cannot find a way to provide money, we cannot have an agreement. So why this stance from the WTO? Well, let me go back to another conference on implementation at the WTO in which I presented the paper. And I was talking about managing development projects and I looked at the audience and nobody seemed to know what I was talking about. So I stopped and I asked the audience two questions. This was in the big meeting room at the WTO, the one right behind the front desk, 300, 350 people. The first question was simply to calibrate the audience because there's always somebody going to say yes to whatever the question is. So I asked, how many of you have ever milked a cow? Five hands went up. So then I had the audience calibrate. And I asked, how many of you have ever worked in a development agency in your part of the, or in your part of the government that manages your relationships with the development agencies? Zero hands went up, which I adjust, of course, to minus five, indicating that the usual presumption that negotiators, socially speaking, are much above the status of development bank workers, and therefore among negotiators, minus five was the appropriate score on any reference to working in a, uh, in a development agency. The Sutherland Report, this, 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 this kind of prideful ignorance is the Sutherland Report of 2005. Okay, I should stop the... Uh, some of this is... Uh, some of this is reviewed, is, 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 is uh, described in a paper in the World Economy, the July issue, so if you can, uh, if you can wait... You can find uh, the rest of this. Last question I want to take up. Why does Pascal Lamy go along with this nonsense? Well, I think Bob Hudek, Robert Hudek provided the answer when he asked back in 1987, 
why the GATT community up to then had included special and differential treatment as the basic principle on the relationship between developing countries and the system. Bob pointed out simply that this was the easy way out for everybody. I think that explains Pascal Amis. It's simply the easy way out of facing the reality of a budget commission. Pascal Ami has shown us the capacity to run fast. He has not shown much of an inclination to push hard. So, let me end. Get up out of your chairs. Go to the WTO. Throw open Pascal Lamy's window and shout, I am mad as hell. I am not going to take this any longer. Thank you, Mike. I, I forgot to mention that Mike now is a, is a consultant in trade policy area. <laughs> and I, 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 would, I would bet the House that he's not going to be hired by the DG's office at the WTO for any project soon. Um, our next speaker, if you've been around Washington, been a part of the trade community for the past couple of decades, whenever there is a big trade battle, a big trade agreement, trade promotion authority, whenever there is protectionist legislation that is percolating, uh, Bill Lane has uh, been leading the charge to, uh, to, to put Congress on the right path. Uh, Bill is a leading business advocate for free trade and global engagement in Washington. He's been with Caterpillar since 1975 and is currently the company's director for government, governmental affairs. Uh, Mr. Lane is also the co-chair of the Latin America, U.S. Latin America Trade Coalition and the U.S. Global Leadership Campaign, a group supporting a robust international affairs budget. Uh, previously, Mr. Lane founded and chaired the USA Engage Coalition and helped lead the business advocacy efforts in support of the Australia and Chile free trade agreements as well as trade promotion authority. Bill is a member the U.S. Industry Advisory Committee on Capital Goods. Uh, he received his B.A. and M.A. degrees from Penn State University. He's uh, an adjunct professor at the Elliott School at, G uh, at, at GW and a board member of Penn State Smeal College Alumni Society. Please uh, welcome Bill Lane. Um, <clears throat> first of all, thank you very much. Yeah, if you'll indulge, indulge me just for a second, because I just really want to say something about Cato. Um, and particularly the young people in the audience. Uh, the first time I was affiliated or associated with Cato was in, I think it was 1987. I was uh, previously working at a factory in York, Pennsylvania, got into governmental affairs, and uh, was invited out to Washington to speak to the Cato Institute. And this was, you had a little house up on Capitol Hill. You used to go outside, even in the middle of the summer, and for a young guy coming to Washington in his best polyester suit, I mean, I didn't realize you were supposed to be business casual, you know, and it was like 98 degrees and I'm sweating. And to show you how much times have changed, we, uh, we were talking about steel protection and we had Caterpillar, which was a big free trader at the time, and we still are. But we also had the chairman of Nucor, uh, Ken Iverson, and he was a big free trader. And, you know, the, you haven't seen that in a long, long time. Uh, they, they now tend to take a different view. But the one thing you can count on, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, when you think in terms of Cato, 
they're always going to be championing both a, an open view of trade, a pro-engagement view of the world, and, and, and they're not going to pivot on that. It's something you can, you can take to the bank. And it's something I've always been a, a, a proud to be associated with. The other great thing about uh, Cato, I mean, we're all a little libertarian, especially when we're younger, we're very libertarian, and then you sort of put in a couple constraints here and there. But I have to tell you, this of all the groups we're associated with or we've had a chance to participate uh, with, I, I, there's none I'm prouder of than Cato, and it's, it's, a real, it's a real compliment. And, you know, right now it's not – we have air conditioning and we got a big room. But I'll tell you, it came from humble beginnings. But the reason why it's successful is they've never been scared to champion big ideas and be persistent in the pursuit of those big ideas. So anyway, on that, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Bill. Let, let, me, let me just say something uh, about Caterpillar. Um, you know, Caterpillar is a free trader. We've really embraced the global marketplace. Um, in the 33 years I've been with the company, I can say categorically these are the best of times. Uh, whether the U.S. is in recession or not is debatable. But one thing that's not debatable, if it wasn't for the strength of U.S. exports, uh, we'd be in a much different environment. Right now, almost two out of three machines that we're producing in the Midwest are destined for overseas markets. Our biggest markets are Canada and Mexico, uh, Chile, Australia, China, and, um, and Brazil. Four of them we have free trade agreements with. And it's in those markets where we've seen the most spectacular growth. So when you lower trade barriers, you're, it's amazing. If you're competitive and you stay focused, good things happen. Now, the reason why I, I was so excited about being here today, because it, it allowed me to sort of do two things. One is coalesce my thoughts about trade, and I want you to think in terms of a, of a stool with three legs. And then secondly, I'd like to inject a little of the lessons we learned from the HELP Commission. The HELP Commission was a, uh, a congressional commission that looked at the uh, uh, benefits of uh, foreign assistance, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. And as a result of that, I got a chance to visit places you normally don't go to. Go to Port-au-Prince, Haiti in August, and no one will ever accuse you of going on a junket. Go to Djibouti in late spring, where it's, you know, over 100 degrees in the middle of the night, and no one will accuse you of going on a junket. And you're seeing things that are going on in the world that I sort of came away with, I really do believe the glass is over half full. We've got a lot of work ahead of us, but this topic is part of that. When you think about trade, think about three legs. The first one is the easy one. It's the one that I like to talk about the most because, you know, I'm an accountant and, you know, an accountant, you know, the definition of accountant is someone who, who passed basic arithmetic and then made it complicated. And when you, when you think about trade lawyers and trade law and what have you, that's essentially what we're talking about. The easiest thing to focus on is on tariffs and quotas. They're, they're easy. You can quantify them. And that's one of the uh, legs. And, you know, clearly if you can lower those type of trade barriers, good things are going to happen. Good things are going to happen for your exporters. Good things are going to happen for your consumers. More than anything else, you're injecting more competition into your economy. And if you react properly, good things are going to happen for the overall economy. And overall, the U.S. has done a pretty good job. But I always want to leave you with one caveat. Whether it's the U.S. or whether it's Europe, the one place where we really do have a big problem is that by accident or by design, we currently have the highest trade barriers, the highest tariffs against the world's poorest countries. 
Can, can anybody, what country do you think in the world the U.S. has the highest effective trade barrier tariffs with right now? Anyone take a guess? The country was named just a couple minutes ago. Well, that's a good one. Uh, those barriers tend to be more focused on, um, on Europe. It's Cambodia. And uh, right behind that is Bangladesh. And to give you a statistic, if you ever really want to feel like we've really uh, gamed the system, with Bangladesh, the U.S. is very proud that we give Bangladesh $80 million a year in aid. We collect a half a billion dollars a year in income from them in the very high tariffs, second highest tariff rate in the world. So, the, you know, in fact, we've tried to figure out how, how can we sort of highlight that. And we we're thinking about coming up with something called the Lucy Award. And, the, and, and what I want you to think of, we remember Lucy with, with peanuts. Uh, some people might not. But whenever uh, Charlie Brown was ready to kick the football, what did Lucy do? Pulled it away. And that's essentially what we do with the poorest of the poor. Once a country gets to the point where they can start producing some basic products, shoes, textiles, things of that sort, what do we do? We make sure they're subjected to the highest possible tariffs. So whether it's duty-free, quota-free, whether it's having a successful Doha conclusion, whether it's through free trade agreements, that's a good plus. So that's one, that's one stool. The second one, which is near and dear to my heart, and that's another type of trade barrier. They're not man-made trade barriers. They're natural trade barriers. And that's the lack of infrastructure. And when you travel around the world, you, you realize very quickly that, you know, man-made trade barriers are nothing. I actually agree with Dan in this, in this regard, that it's the natural trade barriers that can be much more pernicious. When we traveled throughout Haiti, we tried to get to the Dominican Republic. We weren't talking about a lot of miles, 50, 70 miles. It took two days. We have to have specially outfitted uh, Land Rovers with uh, periscopes, not periscopes, snorkels, because in many parts of Haiti, it is easier to drive in the riverbed than it is on the road. The riverbed is a better road. And, you know, the engines have that problem if they suck in too much water. So you've you got to breathe um, uh, higher than the vehicle. But the point being is you have to have infrastructure, whether it's um, uh, airports, whether it's um, telecommunications, whether it's roads. I mean, that is a trade barrier. If you look at the MCC, now, how many folks are familiar with the uh, Millennium Challenge Corporation? Just about everyone. Millennium Challenge Corporation, and I hope it survives the Bush administration, because I think it's really on the right track. The idea was you provide a, a, a substantial amount of money to re, a few reform-minded countries, let them design the, design the aid package, and make it transformational so they can move up a notch in the development order. Um, slow start, but uh, they've been very careful so far. It, it, it appears to be very successful. People are competing for this. The number one type of project that, that people are, are seeking is infrastructure. Over 60% of the MCC funds are going to infrastructure. A fair amount is going to capacity building, uh, which, is, which is another uh, issue. The third stool, or the third leg of the stool, is what we're here today to talk about. And this is the hard one, and this is what I want you to leave is when you, when you think about trade and when you hear people talk about trade, I want you to spend just a little bit of time, because we're always going to talk about tariffs and quotas, and people from Caterpillar, since we make the equipment that provides the infrastructure, we're always going to talk about infrastructure. But this is a hard thing to, to, um, to document, and, th and that's what I think this paper just done a terrific job. Time is money. 
Time creates spoilage, especially for countries that rely on agriculture. I mean, this is really the breakthrough. And the more attention, whether it's done internally or whether it's done with encouragement from other countries, there's a huge payoff to be had. What I'd like to do here is um, just say from a business standpoint, whether it's Caterpillar or from others, when we have looked at our exports around the world, we have noticed that on a per capita basis, you know, the World Bank divides the world into four categories, high income, upper middle, lower middle, and low income countries. Whenever a citizen from one category moves to the next, our sales go up 300%. Our exports go up 300%. So a, on a per capita basis, a citizen in a high-income country buys almost 30 times as many Caterpillar products as some exports as somebody in a poor or a low-income country, which means if we can really get the rest of the world to start developing, almost every American company can become a growth company and not a cyclical. I mean, it's an enormous payoff. I want to end with a story about a cucumber. Because this is what you're going to remember more than anything else. And on top of that, it's a terrific segue into lunch. Of all the travels that we did, the, the, the one example that stuck with me more than anything else involves a cucumber. I was in uh, um, northern Honduras, MCC country. And uh, they have a program, USAI or the Agriculture Department funds it. And the whole notion is you take retirees, they spend some time down promoting true agriculture. The average farmer there has about two hectares, about four acres. And the idea is to get the farmers to grow something other than corn and beans, which tend to be very low value. So the idea is grow uh, sweet potatoes. When we were there, they were growing sweet potatoes or peppers or um, um, onions because it really they can double, triple their income in a year. Pretty significant. So we called everyone around, and there was a young lady there, and for some reason she seemed to be a lot sharper than the other farmers. And I asked the, this lady farmer, I said, if you could grow anything, if you could grow anything that's legal, what would you – got to remember – you got to remember we're in a libertarian uh, area here. Uh, what would it be? And she looked at me and she said, you know, Mr. Lane, i got to tell you, for eight weeks in the winter, for eight weeks in the winter, we own the American cucumber market. We own it. And I said, God almighty, this is just great. You know, A, she's already identified the product that she makes the most money on. Secondly, she has already uh, has to go through all that it takes to be able to come up to capture that eight weeks to make sure all of her fields are in cucumbers. That takes a lot of planning. She, uh, she has to work with the, uh, the, sh the shippers and what have you. I came back to uh, northern Virginia. I was at a cocktail party. I was telling the story because I was so intrigued by it. And uh, I asked, you know, the people, and this one couple said, you know, i got to tell you something. My husband and I love cucumbers. And we notice at Safeway in January, they're now selling cucumbers for a dollar each. And until you told me this story, I thought it was just Safeway's way of ripping me off. But if I would know that that money was going to that woman in Honduras, I'd be eating cucumbers all the time. From a trade capacity standpoint, think about what's involved. She has to get that product to market, which means there's going to, there needs to be more roads in Honduras. And the MCC is building a north-south road. There needs to be a better port. The Port of Cortez is being modernized. All of the things on customs and what have you, you've got to work with UPS to get those products to market and get those products to market in time. 
And if you don't, you don't end up with cucumbers. You end up with pickles. And they don't pay nearly as much. So the point, the point of the matter is, you know, all of this can come together. And who benefits? We get a higher standard of living because we get fresh fruits and vegetables in the winter. The folks in Honduras get a higher standard of living. The folks at Caterpillar, we can sell more equipment because uh, uh, they're going to need better roads and what have you. And the whole circle is complete. We've got to learn to talk about this in a better way. And I'm counting on you all to do that after this meeting. Three legs to the stool. This is a very important one. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Great job. We're, we're running a little short. We started a little bit late, so I'm just going to declare that I'm taking five minutes extra. We're going to, 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 to 1.35, and uh, we're going to do questions and answers now. Um, please, if you have a question, raise your hand, identify yourself, any affiliation you may have, and wait for the microphone to come, and make sure it's a question. Don't go on and on. Just direct your question to whomever you want to direct it to. And let me start by asking if there's anybody in the audience that's in the media that would like to ask a question. Please raise your hand. Okay. Anybody else? Yes, right here. Uh, Peter Whitney, uh, Duke University. I wanted to ask our uh, first speaker, Mr. Kreskoff, on the difference between China and U.S., that shipping cost, I forget, but it was more than twice uh, the price in the U.S. as China. Is that due to the... Uh, longshoremen salaries, is that a big part of that? I don't. Um, thank you uh, for the question. Uh, for, for those of you that uh, might not have heard, uh, the question was about the, the difference between uh, shipping cost based on the World Bank's uh, trading across borders survey between the United States and China. I don't have the data in front of me, but I think it was about uh, 246% differential. I don't know to what that is attributed. Um, I mentioned when I was uh, making my presentation that some of that might be attributable to uh, the currency issue that uh, I know people like Mr. Bloom has been working on. Um, but uh, there's obviously other explanations. Um, these indicators just uh, flag issues like that, and then uh, there would have to be research to ascertain um, what the underlying reasons were. John, have you come across uh, the reasons for differentials in cost and shipping? Uh, uh, no, although we're, we have some new work in process on that issue. Um, as far as the doing business indicators, yeah, you can decompose. I mean, you can look at the factors that, that go into each specific indicator, um, and it's all online on the, the World Bank website. Just put doing business in, and that will come up. Yeah, right here. Thanks. I'm, I'm Charles Bloom. I'm, I'm not uh, IAS group. I'm not going to raise the, the currency issue. But let, let me comment on, on the part of the, uh, the answer is incredibly cheap water transport in China. You can move uh, freight down the Yangtze for a pittance. You move it into the world's largest, most modern, fully mechanized ports, They've invested in infrastructure in a way that puts the United States to shame. Sure. Um, I want to go, to, though, to pickles and uh, cantaloupes. As one who uh, suffered terribly from Honduran uh, cantaloupe in last March, uh, I, I almost couldn't return from uh, Arizona. I got a terrible case of salmonella. 
Uh, I wanted to raise the question of um, product safety and how that fits into this. Product safety is something which seems to work against uh, the objectives of trade facilitation. Is So what's the best, best approach to it? I mean, uh, clearly you, when you've got international supply chains, you've got to somehow or other guarantee product safety throughout the whole thing. So if, if you, in a perfect world, because we're starting with basically GATT Article 20 and nothing else, how would, you atta- how would you approach product safety, anybody can answer this question, in a way that wouldn't get in the way of trade facilitation? Thank you. Does anybody want to take a shot at answering that? I'll, I'll try okay. uh, to start. <coughs> and and I, I think the answer, at least in my mind, is, is uh, what, I, what people call uh, risk management, a good risk management system. I think that's essential for trade facilitation. And risk management, of course, applies to... Uh, product safety, and it also applies to, to uh, um, other types of threats to a nation. Um, a sophisticated risk management system that is computerized uh, can facilitate trade, but also target issues like uh, your the salmonella problem with uh, with cantaloupe. Yeah, I mean, trade facilitation does include uh, when we talk about border delays, we're talking about customs and agriculture and health inspections and things like that. So it's the same sort of streamlining, getting, getting rid of onerous uh, you know, uh, procedures and things like that. Yes? I'm Selena Jackson from UPS. Um, so obviously we're on the front lines of all these issues, and I want to thank Cato also for um, bringing such attention to this issue because we've been trying for many years and, and appreciate that. Um, I was struck by each of the speakers' um, link uh, the discussion about the link between aid and some of these trade facilitation measures or capacity building. <clears throat> and one, one thing we've certainly found is as countries adopt procedures that are going to help facilitate their trade, it really does spur their economy. All of a sudden they get new direct investment, their, their products are more competitive because of all the things you've talked about. What's the best way to express and educate some of these countries, John, that you work with, a bill that you've traveled to, what's the best way for them to understand that it is in their economic self-interest? Are you, are you addressing it to John and Bill? Uh, uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to see Selena Jackson again. Um, uh, I, I think... I mean, it's a, it's a mix of factors. Um, uh, I think there are some, you know, um, some governments that that take the step um, uh, in recognition of the the demands of reform that may be signaled from you know entering into a WTO agreement or a regional agreement. Um, uh, there are. You know, I believe data sets such as doing business and others that have clearly been um, successful in highlighting um, the, the differences across uh, a fairly wide range of spectrum. Um, and there's also, I think, these forces in the international economy, the av- availability of private capital resources for infrastructure, for other um, other initiatives, where people are looking for more effective and efficient rates of return um, on investment, and I think when they look at this area of trade facilitation and lowering trade costs, increasingly we know that there's 
a relatively high rate of return on investment. So uh, it, it's country-specific and region-specific, I suspect, but it's a, a, a range of some of the factors that I mentioned. You know, I actually think a lot of the, um, the salesmanship has to come from the, the businesses. Uh, you know, I look at Caterpillar. If you, if you go back and you, you, you study Caterpillar in 1980, 1975, our competitive advantage was that we had a logistics system that could guarantee a replacement part anywhere in the United States within 24 hours, anywhere in the world within 48 hours. And think about this from a, from a mining standpoint. If you had one Caterpillar uh, wheel loader filling up 20 dump trucks, if that wheel loader breaks down, and in the type of work that's out there, you know, this is heavy equipment, they break down. If you can't get it up and running in a very, very short period of time, the entire mine will come to a halt. So the need to be able to have that replacement part there in a very short order anywhere in the world was absolutely a, a critical success factor for us. When you look at a lot of countries, especially that are starting up the, uh, the, the development ladder, uh, they see bureaucracy as a sort of a jobs program. You know, the more people involved, the more times you hit the stamp, the more people there. It's, you know, for leaving the side of corruption, leaving that issue aside, it's, you know, it's, it's a way to employ people. And what you have to do is get it to the point where the ability to attract foreign investment outweighs the, uh, the, the, the jobs that the bureaucracy um, uh, provides. And that takes, that takes business. I mean, we, uh, I, you know, I think the more we talk about it, the more you have forums like this, the more it's discussed at the WTO, the more it's discussed when you have trade agreements and what have you. You are educating people. And at some point, the tipping point occurs, and people realize it's in their own best interest to be able to have UPS land a product uh, uh, instantly. You know, one of the best examples of anywhere I've seen was in Colombia. And I know there's a lot of discussion with the, uh, the free trade agreement with Colombia, and for the life of me, I don't know why that wasn't passed a year ago. But think about the flour industry. The flour industry employs about 200,000 people in Colombia. The Colombian flour industry in this country, uh, th those same flowers employ about 250,000 people at florists throughout the United States and through our, uh, our, our logistics uh, companies. You know, you can cut flowers in Bogota and have them on a shelf in Walmart in within like 72 hours. That's a phenomenal story, and it means a lot of things have to be put in place so it can occur, and that's all trade facilitation. And the big payoff there is two people like you because of the flowers. First of all is your sweetheart, and, uh, and that's very, very important. But not everybody has a sweetheart, but everybody has a mother. If you don't get those flowers to your mother on time, you know what happens. So that's the big payoff there. It keeps things moving forward. Thanks, Bill. Anybody in the back have a question? Right uh, there, yeah. Third, fourth row or so. Thank, thank you to all of you. Tara Galvin from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Earlier this month, we launched a trade facilitation initiative, and we've been working with Catherine Mann to come up with real dollar denominations that can be gained from trade facilitation reform. And a problem we keep running into as we reach out to countries in the Western Hemisphere with this initiative is a critique of the United States. How do you recommend we go about handling this critique when we're working in-country? And do you know of any movements from the U.S. front to try and improve our standing when it comes to logistics performance as well as doing business? 
I, I like that question. I'm putting the onus on the United States. Does anybody have any uh, comments on that? Go ahead. Come on, Dan. No, I think uh, absolutely this has been considered a development issue, but it is, it is a U.S. issue, particularly now in the post-9-11 environment. There's a trade-off, I think, or at least uh, understandably there's, perhaps there's a trade-off between uh, facilitation and security. And perhaps the uh, Department of Homeland Security uh, focuses just on one end of that and needs the business community to continue to remind them that this is uh, slowing us down and putting us at a competitive disadvantage. So uh, things like the 100% cargo screening initiative, uh, announcing that unilaterally, passing Congress, what, what, what kind of reaction do we expect around the world? The rest of the world, is, all these costs are going to be passed on to them as well. Uh, so, yeah, we need to lead. We need to get rid of the Jones Act which prevents foreign shippers from uh, cabotaging between ports. Uh, we need to look into inspiring competition in rail service and in, in, in other transportation. We have our own logistics problems, no doubt. Um, but countries shouldn't point to the United States as a reason for not reforming themselves. It's in their own interest. They should do it. Stop making excuses. Um, and, in fact, to, to just get back to the point that you raised, you know, when the trade facilitation item hit the WTO in Singapore in '96. It was really an offensive agenda item for rich countries. They were concerned about uh, corruption and board, lack of transparency at the border. But since then, it's just in time, supply chains have evolved, proliferated, and they're all over the place. And now countries around the world are competing not only for markets but for investment and to be part of that supply chain. So it's in their interest, and I think that there's a demonstration effect. And quite frankly, that's why I'm skeptical of the need for the WTO agreement at all. Yeah, right here. I'm Larry Posner from Clapham, Maine. The huge increase in the cost of energy is going to be a huge new additional burden on international trade. Uh, what implications does it have for trade facilitation then? Well, I, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And it, it, it means it's that much more. If you're going to offset it, you're going to have to offset it some way. And trade facilitation is, 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 is a great way to, uh, to do it relatively painlessly. Um, the, the infrastructure requires bigger investments. That's important as well. But uh, that's a very good observation, and it's something that uh, um, it needs to be factored into all sorts of supply chain issues. You know, we have all been taught that uh, the best way to run a business is, you know, just-in-time inventories. You know, the problem with... with uh, lack of uh, facilitation is we all end up with just in case inventory systems. And that can be very expensive. That's good. Time for maybe two more. Um, right here, front row of the, of the back there. Uh, thank you. My name is Aaron Rose. I'm a venture capitalist uh, and part time consultant uh, living in uh, Seattle. And much like uh, Mr. Finger, won't be invited back to the WTO. I don't think the WTO will be back in Seattle anytime soon. Um, question is about uh, I'm in the middle of putting together my own equity among other investors, a $10 million uh, equity financing fund to invest in entrepreneurs in the developing world. You mentioned Haiti and uh, where uh, we've targeted a couple of projects, uh, Cambodia. Um, and as an investor, as a venture capitalist, I've invested mostly in the ICT sector. Uh, in Cambodia, we're looking at uh, a mobile application program. So my question is, is that, admittingly, the, how the free trade works, I'm pretty ignorant on. 
Um, I know how technology can benefit the end user, but how can policies uh, be changed or the U.S. role or other organizations to stimulate foreign direct investment? Uh, I attended a conference yesterday on Sudan, and uh, my interest was about uh, I'm interested in, in investing in Sudan, uh, maybe using private sector development to resolve some of the conflicts going on in Sudan. But what, what can be done, and particularly for people like me in the private sector uh, and as venture capitalists, uh, what is our role and what's the government's role to help stimulate foreign direct investment in regards to uh, trade policy and trade implementation? Any, Mike, you've been kind of quiet. Recalling back uh, in my last years at the World Bank, an important part of the country, country economic memorandum, which is periodic review the bank staff does of conditions in the country, became an assessment of the investment climate. This had the usual indicators you would want to find in that. It was, was basically a way of trying to turn, into, turn operational and numerical the kind of things John mentioned about, uh, about uh, trade facilitation. I never worked on this directly, so I can't give you any example of the indicators, but generally the idea was, one, to create an awareness of the importance of a viable investment climate, an investment climate and two, to uh, provide a scorecard in which countries could uh, look how they rank on this. In my proselytizing for trade facilitation around the world, I often find that if you point out that a container moves into a particularly poor country in 24 hours, but in the country you happen to be, uh, it takes two weeks people pay attention. And so this scorecard function of the investment climate project at the bank is important. Uh, and, uh, you know, generally speaking, these are things that are, that are done retail rather than, than wholesale. I would just add uh, that in terms of your uh, particular situation in Cambodia, I've worked recently in Cambodia, uh, the negotiation of what is known as a BITS, a bilateral investment treaty, would, I think, really help you because the, uh, the legal structure in Cambodia is, uh, is uh, shall we say, euphemistically in transition now. <laughs> and having an international agreement to protect you um, and, and give you, giving you uh, some support and some recourse if you invest there uh, in the IT sector, I think, would be a big benefit. So... Uh, while you're here in Washington, stop by at USTR and tell them to start negotiating. You know, if I could just add one other thing, and I know this goes beyond anything that's in the paper, but uh, and I can't comment on Sudan, but I can't comment on Haiti. You know, trade facilitation also means you have to have security, and I don't want to sound like Richard Nixon, but you need law and order. And boy, there's nothing that's more apparent than when you go to a lot of the countries where it's not secure investment's not going to come in any meaningful way unless there's a, a level of secu personal security. I see there's quite a few hands raised, so um, even if, if one more person doesn't get to ask the question, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, <laughs> but we, at lunchtime upstairs, you'll be free to uh, speak to any of these guys. We'll all be here. Please join us upstairs for sandwiches. Thanks for coming. Appreciate your participation.